and the union's inspiration through the workers' black shaman. There can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one? The union makes us strong. Solidarity forever. What I've ultimately found out is that we lose out on the UAW's history of queer labor solidarity because of how we understand that kind of solidarity. Hi, and welcome to Labor History Today. Today's show is excerpted from an online talk last month, Pride on the Line, the UAW and Queer Labor Solidarity After Stonewall by Jamie McQuaid. It's part of the Our Daily Work, Our Daily Lives brown bag series we've got a link to the full talk as well as others in that terrific series in the show notes and on labor history and two the year was 1929 on that wednesday morning people across the united states woke up to newspaper headlines informing them that something had gone horribly wrong on wall street i'm chris garlock here's the show My name is John Beck. Today's Brown Bag, we're very happy to bring back to Lansing, Jamie McQuaid. Jamie is a PhD student at Wayne State University, where he got his master's on the way to the doctorate. He was an undergraduate student at Grand Valley State uh, University. His mom, um, I know from her work on the UAW Local 602 Oral History Project, Cheryl McQuaid. And so we're very, very happy to have Jamie with us. Jamie's going to help us understand uh, a little bit about the whole intersection of the working class and, frankly, um, at that time, what would have been called queer, which has been broadened uh, dramatically since. His talk today is co-sponsored by the Capital Area Motor Cities Group and the MSU Gender and Sexuality Campus Center. And his topic for the day is Pride on the Line the UAW and queer labor solidarity after Stonewall. Thank you all for joining me today. This is a kind of a personal story for me. When I was growing up, both of my parents were auto workers. My mom did 30 and out. Uh, My dad did a little under a decade to help cover for school. But they always told me, you know, you need to do well in school. You need to go get a degree. We don't want you working in a factory. They would get mad at me when I had bad grades uh, for that reason, but for the longest time, they didn't really understand that one of the reasons I really struggled in school was because I was gay. Uh, There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of terror associated with that. Um, They had never given me reason to think that they would have responded negatively when I came out, but there were a lot of people in my class who did come out and uh, very shortly after that didn't come to school because they were homeless and they had other things they needed to worry about, right? So... For me, this was a very, uh, it was a very stressful time. It was very, uh, it was a scary time for me. At one point, I actually had a really weird, vivid dream where I uh, thought my parents had found out and were, you know, like, oh, we're so disappointed, like one of these, you know, nightmares. And my mom is coming in to wake me up for, uh, for school in the morning and she's shaking me and she's like, you have to, you have to get up now. And like me in my half sleep slumber, Say, you know, I don't know why you care. You don't like me because I'm gay. And she just kind of puts her hand away and says, I'm going to leave the room. And I went back to sleep. I had forgotten about this. 
Uh, but it, it stuck with my mom and she went to work that day and she talked to one of her union sisters, Marilyn. She worked on the line with her and she says, Marilyn, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. Right. I think my son is gay. And Marilyn kind of pauses and says, what do you mean? He's your son. Right. And that's always stuck with me when I uh, got into history. I went right into labor history in part because of that. And I've always had this question of, you know, if, uh, why were my parents so much more supportive when many other parents uh, in my community weren't, right? And what I ultimately found out, uh, not to spoil the end, is that union solidarity actually breeds inclusion and tolerance and acceptance. Uh, but sometimes the way we look at history can, can cloud some of that. So going back to when I started this, uh, this project, I reached out to a, an archivist in the labor movement. I asked them, you know, I'm looking for uh, information about how the UAW has worked with gay and lesbian workers, where can I find information on that? You know, there's a couple of collections, but I'm not seeing much. And they said, quote, I'm afraid I can't offer much more than the collections you've already identified. Historically speaking, the UAW has not been as active as other unions with respect to gay and lesbian rights. So it is likely going to be difficult to find documentation, even if, you know, these other records are ever processed. And to me, that like that hit me pretty hard because I'm like, well, that doesn't really help me explain what's going on here. And what I've ultimately found out is that we lose out on the UAW's history of queer labor solidarity because of how we understand that kind of solidarity. The UAW learns the value of queer labor solidarities pretty early on, actually, in a, one of its uh, its really the big strike that kind of sets the UAW on the on the road it goes on, no pun intended, is the Flint sit-down strike, right? And in the Flint sit-down strike, there are a lot of masculine, manly men in the UAW who don't want women on the shop floor, right? This is a place for husbands, a place for fathers. There's a certain kind of working class gruffness that women shouldn't be exposed to. But when the strike breaks out, they really need help right? As many workers as are working at Buick, uh, not Buick City, but Flint at that time in the auto industry, uh, the police department in Flint is just better funded, right? And so they need a lot of support from the community. They need a lot of help with that. But even when uh, women start going into strike duty, into the union halls to help out with that, oftentimes they're being ridiculed, right? You're on the make, you're trying to get a husband. Uh, when women rebuff that kind of narrative, well, it must be because you're queer and you're not happy in the home. So there's a lot of what we call queer baiting going on when when women and queer workers do try to get involved in, in union activity. But the UAW, again, finds out really quickly that uh, there are much uh, better positive uh, consequences to including workers than by excluding them, right? If you're going to exclude workers from your organizing drive on the lines of uh, race or gender or queerness, uh, you might pick up a couple of more conservative members, but in the end, you ultimately erode those working class foundations that you need to complete your union drives. Janora Dollinger, who, uh, whose picture you saw on the last uh, slide there, she, uh, her experiences are recounted in a 1979 documentary called With Babies and Banners, and she talks about how, you know, once I asserted myself and said, I'm not looking for a husband, they started calling me queer. It a particularly tenuous point uh, in the Flint sit down. Um, you have police around the plant. They're trying to break in. One of the things that the UAW is really relying on is there be a crowd big enough on the outside of the building to keep the police from going in, right? When we talk about breaking the windows and these like key moments in the 
in the Flint sit down, these things are happening outside of the plant, right? They're trying to keep the police from dislodging the strikers. They're having a really hard time getting everyone down uh, to the police lines. And Victor Ruther, who's on the Union sound card, you know, is telling organizers outside the plant, you know, we're probably going to lose this one, right? We're probably going to lose the Flint sit down strike. And Janora says, you know, Victor, well, let me have a chance on, on the recorder. He says, all right, well, I can't see how it would hurt. And Dollinger gives this electrifying speech over the radio. She says, women of the city of Flint, break through those police lines and come down here and stand with your husbands and your brothers, your sons and your sweethearts. They're firing into the bellies of unarmed men down here. The police are cowards. And if they're cowards enough to fire into unarmed men, they're cowards enough to fire into the mothers of children also. People at the strike remember this speech as being, quote, electric. Thousands of people poured out of their homes in the city of Flint and went down to the strike lines, and the police had to retreat. Uh, later on, when the UAW tried to take plant number four, this uh, engine block plant that you at the GM was really hobbling along on, right? We, if we keep this thing operational, we can continue to do business. We can outlast the strikers. The women's auxiliary under uh, Nora Dollinger was used as in the diversionary tactic to draw the police away to plant nine so that the UAW could get into plant four and lock it down. And that was one of the way, that was basically what broke GM's back in that strike. So we see here how gendered uh, and sexual others who are being queer baited at work are saving some of these earliest organizing victories. This lesson kind of stays with the UAW through World War II. A lot of women go on to uh, onto the shop floor and, and retool defense plants to help, uh, you know, this uh, arsenal of democracy that we talk about. The Willow Run bombing plant was uh, notorious for being a center of lesbian community generation, right? Women who are coming from isolated rural communities who have always thought that might they might be alone and how they feel towards other women are joining uh these plants and they're meeting other women like themselves and this is one of the one of the things that leads to a lot of post-war lesbian communities one woman who you see here on the left uh started working at a uaw plant in 1942 she made engines for uh b-23s i believe and she says once i started working in the factory was when i realized that i was a lesbian and i was just thrilled to death to find out there was a name for it that I wasn't just, quote, funny in the head, that there were other people like me. The UAW supported women who wanted to go uh, into union organizing, go into union positions, wanted to go onto, onto steward positions. It's worth mentioning, of course, that if after the end of the war, the UAW uh, does not adequately defend a lot of these women. Uh, some they managed to, to protect their seniority, but Ultimately, the UAW kind of uh, backpedals a little bit and leaves seniority up to locals, and that has very uh, negative sexist repercussions. This falls under this wider like post-war red scare. Uh, the UAW as a, as a left-wing industrial union was less politically acceptable in the 50s when you compare it to the 1930s. And so the UAW ends up participating in a lot of, uh, a lot of these post-war purges. Now, they don't stay up with this for as long as a lot of the other industrial unions do. By the end of the 40s, you start to see internal debates going on, like we're firing some of our best organizers, we need to stop this. Um, but even though in the in kind of like the 50s and 60s years, a lot of labor historians will sometimes say that the UAW, because it participated in this purging, really ties its hands, right? 
even in this kind of a situation, though, you see the UAW carrying on discrete forms of these solidarities. Uh, for example, the UAW gets behind the Community Mental Health Act. One of the things we tend to associate with the Community Mental Health Act was this wave of deinstitutionalization, right? People who needed mental health care uh, are being left let out of hospitals uh, because there just isn't the funds to support them. It's usually seen negatively. But one of the other aspects of community mental health was this idea that not everything that is different about a person needed to be pathologized. It was more important to make sure that a person who had uh, mental or emotional illnesses be have ways to participate in society as like a as a full member, right? Emotional illnesses was something different from a mental illness. A mental illness was, you know, something that we might be able to assign medication for, like schizophrenia. Emotional illnesses were much more things like you're attracted to, to someone of the same sex, you believe you're a different gender than the body you're born in. These were treated uh, or try, attempt, they attempted to cure them through things like the lobotomy, right? Uh, shock therapy, being uh, sent to an institution by courts until you could be cured. Community mental health really said, if they're not hurting anyone else, if this is all consensual, then why can't they have a way to live peacefully in society? Specifically, the UAW said to a court in 1962, the referral of an employee for psychiatric treatment should not end the company, a company's responsibility towards him. Think about this like GM, Ford. Management must recognize that emotional illness can be treated, they don't say cured, but treated, and that its occurrence does not imply an individual will subsequently be incapable of carrying out their responsibilities, right? So we don't see the UAW in, in 1962, 1963 coming out and definitively saying, no, you can't fire gay people because that language doesn't exist yet. But they will say, you can't fire someone because they have an emotional illness. That doesn't make them less of a worker or, let, or less uh, you know, deserving of workers' rights. So then we kind of get back into this problem though, right? Why did this archivist tell me that the UAW doesn't really have any of this history going on? And it really deals with Stonewall, specifically this change in understanding queer transgression from a behavior that people could engage in in the privacy of their own home to something of a political identity. And this politicalization of queer identity doesn't really start to take place until after World War II when the government gets very interested in kind of regulating what families are okay and what families aren't okay, right? Do you have one uh, husband and one wife? How many kids do you have? Are you all the same race, right? There were a lot of post-war requirements in place if you wanted to be seen as an authentic family. So with the Stonewall uprising, there is this idea of, of putting off that oppression and, and not just say acknowledging that you engage in queer behavior, that you have these, these same sex intimacies and romances, or that you believe that you know you are this gender, but you weren't born in the body for it. That starts to really pick up speed and people start to say, no, I am facing oppression. This is a political issue, right? The personal is political. It's a very, you know, it starts out as a groovy 1960s thing, but it really has far-reaching implications for people too. When this is happening, this change is happening in the UAW, the union is going through a lot of very uh, tense moments. The, uh, the auto industry is changing, for example. You have a government that's increasingly apathetic to kind of labor's interests as it tries to get more business friendly in the face of new competition. And so because of this, a lot of folks in the UAW 
might be a, they we can definitely classify them as historically taking a little bit of time to get on board with things again though kind of like how we see with the flint sit down strike this has some negative consequences specifically the politic the politicization of, of gay identity of lesbian identity when it's not addressed by the uaw suddenly it emerges as a very effective tool uh for managers who want to maybe break apart shop floor solidarities right i have a a quote here that is uh from someone he wrote uh joe schumann wrote an article in the gay liberator about his experiences on the shop floor in the auto industry in 1973 and he says I work in a factory whose workers recently decided to go on strike against a cut in real wages and worsening working conditions, right? We're seeing the speed up happening at this time. We're seeing plants being artificially pushed towards obsolescence so that production can be moved elsewhere if it can't be automated. When our union's contract expired June 1st, we voted about 300 to 15 to strike. Excellent. However, one young worker in the punch press department told me that he was against the strike. He said he didn't mind a little extra work and that those who wanted to strike were just lazy expletives. I think his comment illustrates part of what I believe causes gay oppression. Obviously, my punch press friend believes that to be a real man, the opposite in his mind of a lazy expletive, he has to work enthusiastically. It doesn't matter that he gets no real benefit. He gets the benefit of assuring himself that he isn't this thing, right? Seems to me that this comment is an extreme example of a general pattern which motivates hard work without real rewards. He goes on, this motivation works because most men have some homosexual tendencies. You have that Kinsey scale of one to six. It's not just are you or aren't you. Most men have some kind of homosexual tendencies and they might be taught to hate and fear that, right? Especially if you're coming of age in, in a time like the Red Scare, which if you don't know this is concurrent with another thing called the Lavender Scare. Very similar thing, one targeted communists, one targeted queer people. Uh, one, the Lavender Scare lasted for much longer. Uh, right, they believe this fear can be conquered by becoming a real man, right? And everyone knows that a real man loves hard work. When managers are able to lean into this, they can divide workers, they can pit workers against each other in an attempt to serve their own interests. Now let's talk about some of this, uh, this crew labor solidarity after Stonewall. The first instance I wanna talk about is about Gary Kapanowski. Now, Gary Kapanowski was uh, a auto worker at Briggs Manufacturing. It's a uh, suburb north of Detroit in Sterling Heights. And Kapanowski went into Briggs Manufacturing once he got out of high school in 1965. And, he's, and he told me in his oral history, you know, like I would, uh, the fact that I was, that I was gay and he started to use the term gay. It didn't bother a lot of workers, some it did, but most workers, you know, if they weren't interested, they didn't uh, They didn't get upset, they didn't turn it into a thing. They just said, you know, I'm not, I'm not into that. Well, all of this is going on, there are rumors going around at Briggs that the manufacturing company is going to close the plant. They're gonna relocate to somewhere in the in the Appalachian Mountains. They're going to move the plant somewhere else and they're going to make people who work at Briggs reapply for much lower wages and without a union. Kapanowski hears about this and he's like, I should really try and get on the bargaining committee because there's another contract coming up. And uh, yeah, I don't want that to happen, right? 
So the company swears up and down, up and down, like we're not moving, we would never move. We love the community here. And so Kapanowski loses this seat. There is a very concession laden contract uh, put forward that gives the company a lot of rights, requires a lot of mandatory overtime. The moment, not the moment the ink is dry, it does take, you know, it's probably the next day. Uh, but very shortly after this new contract is signed, Briggs comes out and says, actually, we're relocating to Knoxville, Tennessee. We're going to build a giant factory out there. And we know we're paying you $5 an hour, but if you would like to reapply, this is in 1972, mind you, these are pretty good wages. If you would like to reapply to work in the non-union plant in, in Tennessee, you can start out at $2.15 an hour, right? So obviously these workers are upset. They've been lied to. And Kapanowski says, well, we're stuck with the contract we have. Maybe I can run as a, as a shop steward to try and make sure that workers are represented, to make sure that closing benefits, the closing shop arrangement really serves their interest. And so he runs again, this time as shop committee chairman, right? He wants to represent workers and make sure that Briggs is, is following their end of the contract as they close down this manufacturing plant. He also holds out hope that, that the UAW will be able to challenge the plant closure uh, in court as uh, under the idea of general welfare uh, under the constitution. This and ultimately doesn't go anywhere, but he continues fighting for workers. And when his when his election as uh, shop committee chairman is about to take place, some folks within the company reach out to some uh, members in the administration caucus running against Kapanowski and they say, we'd like to help you. Uh, there is some information that you might be able to use in this, in this election if you don't know about Kapanowski. The day before the election, Kapanowski goes to work at Briggs. He goes to, uh, he's gonna start by going to his locker, get his things, get his coffee going before he punches in. And when he walks into the plant, there are these orange and black flyers written like plastered throughout the building that say Kapanowski is an expletive word. Do you want an expletive word uh, bargaining with management, right? Do you want a, a, a limp-wristed expletive representing you on, on the negotiating table? It's a pretty underhanded tactic. Kapanowski leaves. He's not sure if he's even ever going to go back into work. But some of his friends, uh, he, Kapanowski is in, a, is in a reform caucus called the um, UNC. Some of his friends in, UN, in the UNC say, no, you need, to, you need to go and go in, vote, and see how this election turns out. You aren't beaten yet. You know, don't throw in the towel. And he ultimately agrees, right? I'm going to go in tomorrow with my head held high, and we're going to see where it goes. Workers at Briggs elect him as their uh, plant, their chief steward on a two-to-one ratio. That's solidarity. The company is not out yet though. They see what's happening. They see that uh, the workers now have a representative who's gonna get litigious on their behalf. And so the company goes to the UAW International and they say to the UAW International, look, this guy's threatening the contract. If you don't put this local under receivership, uh, the workers are gonna get absolutely nothing, right? We've put it out aside a couple hundred thousand dollars for uh, to help with their employment transition. But if you don't do something, this guy's out. This, this is all done, right? UAW is in a little bit of a pickle because even if people at International agree with Kapanowski, there is this emerging trend in US politics where increasingly courts, government officials, they're starting to side against the union on things like this, right? So unfortunately, the UAW does eventually put Kapanowski's local under receivership. They tell Kapanowski, you know, you're not fired or anything. 
uh, but you're not negotiating with management anymore. That's going to be our job. Kapanowski again seems really defeated, right? Is he going to go into work tomorrow? This is pretty embarrassing. He's like, he won this election and he's going up against this company, but now the international of the union is saying, no, you're doing this wrong. Step aside, right? Again, Kapanowski goes back to work a little bit later in the day. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to get there right at punch, whatever. Pulls into the parking lot and every single worker at Briggs is standing outside. They refuse to go in until the UAW rescinds their receivership and puts Kapanowski back in charge of negotiations. As a result of this, Kapanowski and the UAW, with, by cooperating with him, are able to pressure the company to put an additional $1.5 million in early 1970s money into this fund that they've promised for the workers at Briggs. It's a magnitude of, of fourfold, three or fourfold increase over what they had before. And this definitively improves the lives of people uh, at the plant. I have another example I would like to talk about about Joni Christian. Joni Christian started working uh, like Kapanowski uh, in the auto industry in the 60s. In 1975, she went to her UAW local, local 1112. The president there at the time was Gary Briner. And she tells them, I'm going to be going uh, away for a couple of months. I'm having sex reassignment surgery done. Um, I wanted to let you know so that there isn't gonna be any problems with that coming back, knowing that there might be some there might be some questioning, there might be some bigotry, like the, the Gay Liberation Front and the gay rights movement starting to take place this time. This is really when transgender identity starts to become politicized. And so, whereas before, you might see an interview with uh, Christine Jorgensen with a very like right-wing interviewer, but the right-wing interviewer is kind of treating her respectfully, like trans identity back in the 50s was seen as much more of something weird and not something that might be politically threatening in the 1960s and 70s with male backlash, with white backlash, like the civil rights movement and the feminist movement. Things are changing though. And she says, you know, I wanna to go to the union and the company ahead of time to make sure that they know. Well, she's out, General, the supervisors at General Motors, this is at Lordstown, go to a bunch of the women workers who had only been hired in a couple of years earlier and they and they tell them you know if you want to circulate a petition to have this person barred from the women's restroom we'll support you with that uh you know pause me if if any of this sounds familiar maybe right transgender worker wants to use the bathroom let's stir up fear about that Petition is presented to the UAW and Gary Briner and the rest of local leadership flat out shoot it down. They say she is your union sister and she pays her union dues. She has the right to do whatever she wants. They don't just stop with this though. When Joni Christian returns to work, they connect her with uh, legal representatives and help her sue General Motors for invasion of privacy. Uh, she, win she doesn't win her suit, she settles out of court. It is settled in her favor though. And the UAW goes on to work with progressive supervisors at the company to uh, help identify trans discrimination, educate against that, and make sure people at the plant uh, visibly see transgender workers so that there isn't that kind of reaction, right? We want people to be comfortable uh, with working with you, and we want you to be comfortable working here. And because of that effort, she is able to retire in 1999 after 30 years with a full pension and benefits. She also played a huge role in Lordstown's Drive It Home campaign in the 1980s. 
Uh, before Lordstown was recently closed, there was another effort uh, in the late 80s to close it. And because of that activism that, that she and her union family took on, uh, the Lordstown facility was uh, used for an additional 20, 25 years. So that's another example about how that union inclusion really helped the UAW. There, of course, are more examples if we want to look from a not maybe focusing on the union, but from a queer historical perspective. In 1982, the UAW started organizing workers at the city's Village Voice newspaper. In 1982, the HIV AIDS crisis was really starting to break out, especially in places like New York, where Village Voice is located, but also on the West Coast. And workers there are realizing that even if they have uh, health care through their employer, uh, if someone finds out they have AIDS, if someone finds out they're HIV positive, this is before the Americans with Disabilities Act, they can just be fired. And so what workers at Village Voice tell the UAW is we need same-sex partner benefits. So if our partners lose their coverage, we can still get them to a doctor. The UAW wins that, and it's actually the first union contract in American history to win same-sex partner benefits for any workers. Another example to talk about Ron Woods. In the 1990s, Ron Woods had heard in the news that Cracker Barrel was going to be opening a new location in Belleville, Michigan. It was going to be the first location in Michigan. Cracker Barrel, if you've been there, they have wonderful soaps and some runny eggs. I'm not going to lampoon Cracker Barrel the Great, but at the time, uh, they had some very backward views over whether or not you could work for them if you were gay or not. They've amended this policy, but when Cracker Barrel was trying to come into Michigan, this upset Ron Woods. He was uh, a gay engineer working out of uh, Trenton, Michigan, uh, Downriver community. And he was working for Chrysler and he went to his local and said, hey, this company is coming to Michigan and they have this, this policy of firing anyone who's gay, who works for them. Isn't that a union issue? Will you, will you support me uh, going and organizing this protest? Can I get your, your endorsement behind it? And the local says, absolutely, 100%, go ahead. So Ron Woods organizes what becomes the largest gay rights protest in the state of Michigan history. Hundreds of people show up at this Cracker Barrel for its opening weekend and riot police have to be called to keep order. Ron Woods's picture is circulated in the Detroit Free Press. However, and some of his uh, not as uh, fortunate and enlightened coworkers start to attack him at work. Ron Woods refuses to, to give in or to shut up or to quit and leave. He continues to hold the union, the union local to task and say, I'm being discriminated against here. Chrysler's not doing anything with when they should be protecting workers from this kind of harassment. And ultimately, he and some other very committed rank and file activists get the union to uh, officially add sexual orientation onto its non-discrimination clause in its contract in 1992. What do we take away from all this, right? What do, what do we benefit from learning this history? We learned a couple of things. First is that the labor movement is stronger when it is inclusive and democratic. I wanna stress democratic. I, haven't followed up as, because this is a little post 2000, but we also see a lot of uh, queer organizers and LGBTQ rank and file workers who are involved in uh, the U uh, UAWD, right? The one member, one vote push in the UAW. There is a heavy hand in that. That made the union stronger. 
the labor movement is stronger when it protects the rights of its militant organizers. If you fire everyone in the 50s because the government doesn't like them, it's going to be really hard to keep that momentum going. The labor movement is stronger when it pushes against boundaries and constantly asks what more is possible for working class people. And lastly, the labor movement is stronger with queer people in it. A very good friend of mine once told me that citation is memory. Citation is how we acknowledge our debt to those who came before, those who helped us find our way uh, when the way was obscured because we deviated from the paths we were told to follow. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1929. On that Wednesday morning, people across the United States woke up to newspaper headlines informing them that something had gone horribly wrong on Wall Street the day before. Black Tuesday, as the day came to be known, had capped off a devastating drop in the market that had begun with the great crash the prior Thursday. $25 billion was lost in the crash, which would be about $300 billion in today's money. The crash helped spark the Great Depression that saw unemployment soar to 25% and nearly half of the banks in the United States fail. But the day after the crash, the news reports were not all doom and gloom. While Variety declared in big bold letters, Wall Street lays an egg, other headlines struck a different tone. The New York Times wordy headline stated, quote, stocks collapse in 16,410,030 share day, but rally at close, cheers brokers. Bankers optimistic to continue aid. The Chicago Tribune went with the more concise, stock slump ends in rally. Newspaper reporters attempted to explain the crash. The Denver Post blamed the downturn on gamblers. The Philadelphia Evening Ledger blamed the propagandists of gloom and economic terror. And the New York Times blamed the reckless Wall Street speculators. But many papers also attempted to quell panic over the bad news from New York. The Kansas City Star assured readers that once the adjustment is completed, the country will move forward to new levels of prosperity. The Nashville banner similarly predicted the reaction had to come and the country will be better off for the lesson it has had, costly though it be. That costly lesson became a devastating global depression. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Please like it, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Special thanks this week to John Beck at the Our Daily Work, Our Daily Lies Brown Bag Series, sponsored by the Michigan State University Museum, the Labor Education Program at the MSU School of Human Resources and Labor Relations, and the Old Town Association in Lansing, Michigan. Our music was Solidarity Forever, the anthem of the labor movement, sung by UAW members at Ford. Labor History Today is produced by Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening, keep making history, and see you next time. Oh,